Hi, I'm Will Hannafin, and welcome to episode two of Sure It Was Better, the summer series. Join me and my incredible and long-suffering panel of Polly McGlynn, Jules Call, and Emer McLeisett as we trawl through eight decades of RTE archives to find out whether it was better or whether it was worse back in the day. On tonight's episode, we find out that men had opinions on, well, everything. She came in the other day in a sweater and jeans. Any resemblance between her and a lady were entirely coincidental. So said Terry Dix, British MP, about his fellow MP, Harriet Harman. He was, of course, commenting on that subject dear to many a man's heart, how we women should or shouldn't dress. And we hear the views of a new father back in 1973. It wasn't exactly fun and games. We asked the father of a five-month-old baby what he felt. I I certainly didn't feel, uh, I didn't really expect to feel, any great outflow of emotion or affection or responsibility. Uh, That comes later. Uh, It grows on you. You've got to know the the individual, the person, before you can feel any affection. And in Ideas Before Their Time news, we discovered this piece of archive from the early 70s about a group looking for glass bottles to be brought back. Meanwhile, across the city at Cornell's Court, a group calling themselves the Friends of the Earth were campaigning for the withdrawal from use of the plastic milk bottle and by means of leaflets and posters were pointing out the advantages of glass. I asked one of their members, Mr. Patrick Dunn, what are their main objections to the plastic milk bottle? Uh, These bottles are made from oil, which is a precious non-renewable resource and which is swiftly running out. First up tonight, when I said in the introduction that we're looking back at eight decades of archives, I really meant it. This is a newsreel from March 4th, 1941. 82 years ago, broadcast first during World War II. The fears and anxieties of being a neutral nation while the world was at war are clear in this bulletin, narrated by Radio Air and broadcaster Larry Morrow. And there was a lot of pressure on a 75-year-old man from North Dublin to come up with some early potatoes. Have a listen. Hello, America. Well, here's our usual evening feature, Today in Ireland. And this is Larry Morrow. There's good and not so good news about the food position in Ireland today. And if the bad news is something we can't avoid, owing to the difficulties of importing foodstuffs from abroad, the good news is something we can congratulate ourselves on in a double sense. For it shows that the country, as far as home-produced foodstuffs are concerned, is getting on with this most important of all present-day jobs. The bad news, at least for the man on the street, is simply that the government has announced the scheme for rationing tea. From early next month, Irish men and women will have to make do on two ounces of tea per week. There will also be a family allowance of one ounce a week for children under 12, which is intended to eke out household supplies. Registration begins almost at once. There's an inspiring little story in one of this morning's papers about a 75-year-old farmer in County Dublin who's been working wonders with his crop of early potatoes. His name is Patrick Jones and he farms a small holding of three acres of sandy soil on which he has reared seven sons and five daughters and set them up in farms of their own when they grew up. Old Patrick is an expert on the manuring of soil with seaweed. This year he's been trying out further experiments and he'll have potatoes on the Dublin market as early as any that used to come from the Channel Islands off the southwest coast of England where they have as warm a climate as in France. The early Channel Island potatoes used to be a great delicacy with Dubliners. This year, the early potatoes will be coming from County Dublin itself, thanks to Patrick Jones and men like him. It's interesting, by the way, I think, 
to learn from the Chief Inspector of the Ministry of Agriculture that the world's record yield of potatoes came a few years back from a holding of poor soil in Donegal, which yielded no fewer than 35 tonnes to the acre. We'll hear more about our resourcefulness during World War II food shortages later in the programme. But now, we're scrolling forward to 1984. But the sexist attitudes clearly on display could be from several decades earlier. This is the Women Today programme and the presenter, Roisin Boyd, is discussing the issue of men's attitudes to women's dresses. Stay calm, everybody. Breathe. As Roisin dispatches reporter Hilary Orpen to talk to a man with very definite views on what women should be wearing. She came in the other day in a sweater and jeans. Any resemblance between her and a lady were entirely coincidental. So said Terry Dix, British MP, about his fellow MP Harriet Harman. He was of course commenting on that subject dear to many a man's heart, how we women should or shouldn't dress. We thought you might like to hear the views of one man who has definite views on that subject. Hilary Orpen asked him how he likes women to dress. Well mainly in dresses or skirts and the reason for that is being that uh, a woman's attributes uh, should be um, for the purpose of the male himself mainly is to be to be admired and if a woman happens to dress in jeans or slacks that doesn't uh, show her uh, femininity at all it only uh, shows her as more being a masculine type of person rather than a feminine type of person and uh, do you think women like to be admired do you think they like their figures to be taken into account by men very much so because uh, women the very fact that the women is that they they like to be admired and uh, like to a lot of attention to be passed on them now there's a lot of uh, liberated women might feel that uh, that's not so and listening to me they might think I'm something of a male chauvinist but I would like to get this specifically clear to them across to them that I was never a male chauvinist and I never will be it's just that my opinion of, of the woman is to see her nicely dressed and therefore to be admired. I'll stop you there for a second, mister. Remember, this was 1984, and that was a very difficult year for women in Ireland. It was the year that 15-year-old Anne Lovett died after giving birth at a grotto in Granard, County Longford. The year that the Wexford teacher, Eileen Flynn, lost her unfair dismissal appeal against her employer, the Holy Faith Nuns. She lost her job because she was living with a married man and had a baby with him. There was no divorce in Ireland until 1995. Anyway, go on. You were saying the woman being being a female, she she'd rather be uh, in a situation where she's admired from the from the male. And if she felt that she wasn't being admired, well, she'd say she'd take note of herself and she'd say, well, was, what's wrong with me that I am not being admired? Is there something wrong with my dress or something? And then she might come to terms with herself and say that, well, it's due to the fact that I have um, the way I'm dressing or the way I'm presenting myself. And if I present myself in a more feminine way, therefore I'll be ad- admired. Uh, so do you think women should dress a bit more provocatively, if you like? slightly low necklines, figure-hugging dresses. Is that feminine? No, no, I don't mean, when I mention feminine, I don't mean it in that aspect. I mean that uh, that's uh, to be dressed provocative only uh, it would lead men thinking, well, you know, they'd various thoughts will go through their minds as to give what type of character this girl is made up or girls as that case may be. Any males that I know of, they would rather see a woman dressed 
in a, with a dress or a skirt or rather than slacks because they feel that uh, it's they're more like themselves when they're dressed in, in with slacks they dress in slacks they have their own reasons that they think that they they're in a liberated world a liberated world and uh, they they feel that uh, they can compete with men but i mean i'm not saying that they shouldn't compete with men but i feel that they, if they were as i mentioned earlier on if they were, they were dressed that uh, with a dress on them or a skirt on them that they would uh, they'd have more attention they'd get more attention from what about the women who object to being whistled at in the street are they only pretending they object to it? Is That's that what you it. think? I would be convinced of that, very much convinced of it, because they like to be whistled at. Have you whistled at and women? More feminine. No, it's one thing I've never done. But do you, do you make them feel, or try to make them feel that they're looking smashing or anything like that? Do you do anything? Well, a compliment, a compliment to a woman could boost her day up, it could make her day up. Mm. Uh, it may, could uh, mean that if she if you said her hair was nice or her dress was nice, she, she, you would have made her day. And in some cases, that, um, as I said, women with slacks and constantly wearing slacks and jeans, fellas tend to drift away. May, the male tends to drift away rather than say the fellas. The male tends to drift away from them. Mm. Their attention drifts away from them. Not would you say that women are there to be admired and the men are there to do the admiring? That's it. Yeah. Couldn't ever be the other way around. Well, the woman admires the man, all right, but uh, not in the same sense that the man admires the woman. How exactly does the man admire the woman? Well, the man admires the woman from the way she dresses and the way she presents herself. And as you said earlier on, if she if she dresses provocatively, uh, he tends to uh, say that this woman has uh, she might. Maybe not to his liking, like... You're saying, no, to be frank now, you're yeah. saying if, if a woman wears perhaps a tight-fitting dress or a low-cut dress, that she's possibly not a very good character. Oh, no, a low-cutting dress, but not a tight-fitting dress. I would, uh, it, that'd be OK, but a, a low-cutting dress, as you say, uh, well, that in men's minds would... Would, um, would mean what? Well, she was easy. Would mean that she was easy, yes. But a tight-fitting dress means something different. She's, as I earlier on, would I want to repeat myself too much, is that she's uh, she's shown off her attributes that she has. And that's a good thing, you think? Good thing, yeah. And what if her attributes aren't up to very much? Too big or too small? Well, the very fact that she wears slacks and uh, jeans won't make her... Uh, it, it would make her look twice as bad as if she wear a dress or a skirt. So how much time do you spend admiring the female form? I don't spend a lot of time about it, but... Uh, but just you are concerned I about it, aren't you? I, I'm concerned about it. If I pass them and if I see a woman that's uh, nicely dressed, I might pass a remark in passing. That's uh, on the bad if, I, if I've seen her constantly and um, constantly wearing, um, sorry to be so repetitive, about slacks but, uh, or jeans, I wouldn't tend to pass her mark on her at all. Have you ever suggested to your wife that she should dress in a more feminine way? Always. How do you say it? I just say that a dress would look better on you or a skirt would look better on you but slacks time and time again I've said it to her. Did she tell you to get lost? No. What did she say? She should she, take, take heed of what I say to her. And run upstairs and change? No, them. not so much and run upstairs and change. We're going out or something like that, that she would dress. Not with slacks on, but with a dress and skirt. And then she'll go out in somebody will admire And then she won't necessarily say it to me. But I know that in her mind, is that she's, she's, uh, she's been admired by people for wearing a dress. 
people come along and say, so you're looking well, or something. You might even get a mail saying, a couple of mails saying, you're looking well, and that's it. You're vindicated. <laughs> After all that unasked for fashion advice, let's go back to 1959 and this cautionary tale that you should always be aware of the dangers of falling bits of stone pineapples when you're going about your business in Dublin city centre. So the Crampton Memorial in College Street, the most unseemly monument probably in the world, has at long last had the decency to start demolishing itself. This horror has been described as, among other things, a decaying pineapple. And this morning, when some of its top fell off, it seemed to be proving it. None of which takes away from the fact that in the suicide of the Crampton, a good man was unfortunately hurt. This afternoon, we went to see him. What I hear in Mercer's Hospital, I'm at the bedside of the man the monument fell on. It's Tommy Darby of Clotter Road, Crumlin. Is that right, Tommy? That's correct, yes. Well, tell me exactly what happened. Well, I was inspecting manholes down the Post and Telegraph in the College Green. And I was just getting up after inspecting one, and I was standing on the side of the Park Monument. And the next thing I felt was getting knocked onto the road or something hit me in the small of the back. You didn't hear any I didn't hear any noise or see anything. Well, that's all and you that's all I knew, but I couldn't get up off the road. You, were, you weren't unconscious? I wasn't unconscious, no, but I just couldn't get up. You thought you'd been and hit by a car, probably? I, I had that impression that I'd been hit by a car like that. I'd come along the side of the monument. Was anybody around at the time? Well, my own workmate was, was standing there beside me, and the foreman had just gone off to the phone to ring up headquarters. Tell him that we were finished inspecting the holes. So well, when he came back, I was around the road and there was a crowd around and sent for the ambulance. So I was taken away to the hospital. What did they uh, they tell you what had happened? They just said that half of the monument had fallen and I was lucky that it didn't come on my head. Certainly were. Mm. Yes. It just got you in the small of the back? Just in the small of the back, yes. Well, how do you feel now, Tommy? Uh, I feel like there's a lot of pain in, in, the, in the back. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, well, you're in good hands. Yeah. Yes, I'm in good hands. Is this your first accident? It is, yes. Nothing ever happened to you before? No. Well, it's about the most dramatic one I've heard of in the week, if not in the year. You, you know that memorial, do you? I do, yes. What do you think of it? It was, well, it was good when it used to, uh, the water used to flow out there. So it was statues years ago, but now it seems to be uh, a nice saw, I think, anyway. Yes, a lot of people feel that it mm. is a nice saw, and a lot of people would like to see it done away with. So we may say that you take it apart and uh, help it to do the work. <laughs> yes. As a footnote to this, on leaving the bedside of our colleague, we went to find out something about the probable fate of the memorial. We asked the Corporation, Dangerous Building Section and the Board of Works. Both said they didn't own it. Poor old Tommy. The Crampton Monument, named after eminent surgeon Philip Crampton, was situated at the junction of Dublin's College Street. The bizarre memorial, which was made up of a stone base with three drinking fountains and what looked like the top of a pineapple, slowly rusted and fell apart, as we've been hearing. Let's bring in our very own panel of Pauline McLean, Jules Call and Emer McLeisett with their thoughts. Neither own us. Jeez. Can you imagine Tommy with the insurance claim now being oh, hit stop, by yeah. a disintegrating oh, pineapple yeah. in the small of the back? Clough Road crumbling. Just in case some of his neighbours yeah. don't know that he was on the radio. <laughs> but you know, it had a smack of top ambulance chasing, didn't it, from uh, RTE yeah, there. Yeah, um. yeah. I was just wondering, has there ever been a monument or a, a memorial in Dublin that people have actually liked? I feel like any time anything has gone up there, it's The floozy and the jacuzzi, yeah. I loved her. And do you remember they used to put Stiletto the fairy liquid the in? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to think, is there anyone? I mean, Molly Malone has always been a favourite. True, She yeah. was moved. The tourists yeah. love to have a grab at her. Um, I've never seen a picture of this bizarre pineapple monument, but I'm definitely 
definitely going to go and look it up. Absolutely. By the way, James Joyce mentioned the monument in Ulysses when Leopold Bloom passes the monument and thinks, and I quote, Sir Philip Crampton's memorial fountain bust. Who was he? Joyce also referenced the monument in his novel A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man when Stephen Dedalus explains different forms of art to his friend. Again, I quote, Is the bust of Sir Philip Crampton lyrical, epical or dramatic? Anyway, this next archive clip is from 1977 and they certainly don't make documentaries like they used to. This is a fly-on-the-wall documentary about Dublin Corporation's sanitary department and there was probably flies everywhere else as well. And as we'll hear, customer service, they could take it or leave it. So really your job is to liaise with the, the householder? Okay, and the workers. And, the and workers. any problem may always the possible start to move there and then. The thing I notice about the workers, none of them seem to wear protective gear. Well, really, you have this, uh, an issue about uh, waterproof and uh, they have a jacket and a pair of pants, but in this sort of it's very hard to wear anything because, as you see, they're bending the best part of the time and walking back and forward sweat. It's really, it's, it's hard on them. But again, but regards to shoulder pads and all that, it's a lot of a bother wearing those things. Do you get many complaints from householders? We do, and... We don't. I mean, it's what we do get. I think it's a simple thing, actually. Most of the type of material they're putting out. They might, lads might come across, say, a lot of concrete blocks or something like that, and they pass them by, which happens a lot. I mean, you just can't put them to the car. These are properly cars now. A value them, the damage that they could cause, which they got, when they get put in, they get pushed out to the side, maybe. So other than that, we don't really get a hold of them. One person, maybe in 10 years, might have only the occasion to report something or complain about some of the other. If it's not road sweeping, maybe a gully outside the door may be blocked, but get it cleaned up for her. Well, it's an amazing thing that you could nearly, when you receive a complaint, tell who it's from. It's nearly the one, one people that continually make complaints. No. If On the, the whole, you don't get complaints. You don't general, get the general public. You could get the fellas to kneel down and wash outside the door. They still write in that uh, there's something wrong. The bin, the bin men let a, a, a matchbox fall out of the bin outside the door. Back in headquarters at Marabone Lane, Jim Moran wrestles with larger problems. Well, the biggest problem is the disposal of the refuse which we collect. People take it for granted that we should lift the refuse and very seldom think or worry what we should do with it thereafter. The system we use in Dublin is sanitary landfill or controlled tipping. In this method, you get low-grade land and tip the refuse in six-foot layers, compacting it with a heavy bulldozer by doing so. You then cover it each day with about six to nine inches of soil. The purpose of this is to prevent the emission of smells the control of insects such as flies, preventing fires, helps rodent control, though this is dealt with separately. We treat uh, for rats separately. It's done by the Eastern Health Board on a regular basis. And it also prevents litter being blown around the area. Uh, we also surround all our tip heads with wire in case any papers do blow during the daily day-to-day operations. Let's hear from Pauline, Jules and Emer now. By the way, contact me by emailing sure at rte.ie if you recognise anybody in these clips. Wow, haven't we come a long way with our recycling? We have, but no, we're, well, producing, yeah. we're uh-huh. producing so much more that I don't know has really made much of a difference. That, that's actually true. And I was thinking about the bins back then. Do you remember the aluminium with the aluminium lid? Can you imagine the weight of lifting that, let alone the contents? Yeah. That must be really tough. Oh, and it was all oh, physical labour, like throwing it into the truck. 
Yeah, but there was a, one of those supervisor supervisory types was very begrudging about them having to do their job at all. <laughs> really, we, you know, wasn't keen on it. You know, um, I love <laughs> even the, though that was their job. I love the way they were able to identify that it's basically the same dose that complains all yeah, the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's exactly. that one. That's Mrs. Whoever or Mister Whoever on on you know whatever road in Crumlin. Maybe they know Tommy from the previous. <laughs> Do you know, it, it takes me back a bit, though, to um, when municipal buildings were, you know, probably run by the same bit of um, the county council or whatever, because um, I remember in the National Gallery, if you went in to use the loos in there, um, the, the loo roll had was stamped with the little crest of Ireland, you know, because it was a municipal building and it was basically greaseproof paper um, oh. that you were using. Yeah, it just shifted things around. God, so, um, oh. it, you know, it was centrally organised I feel like we used to get that in school do you remember that primary school little boxes of greaseproof paper little blue boxes that's right my goodness at the same time as this was yeah this sanitary department documentary was being made yeah time for a 1980s ad break now the Homeless Girls Society provides a comfortable home for homeless teenage girls. The Society's annual Flag Day takes place today. The Homeless Girls Society needs your help. Please give generously to the annual Flag Day for the Homeless Girls Society today. Your partners, please, for the new Bird's Eye Potato Waffle Square Dance. Take your waffles by the hand. Grill them, bake them, fry them in the pan. They're crisp outside with a fluffy inner. Sure to make a tasty dinner. Sausages, eggs, and burgers, too. It's up to you, whatever you do. So give the family some, my, oh, my, new potato waffles from Birdseye. New Birdseye potato waffles. They make the squarest meals around. National Aluminium put you first, and in return you made us Ireland's number one replacement window company. So think why so many people choose National Aluminium. Our windows are found in the best protected homes in Ireland. National Aluminium windows are attractive and strong. So strong they come with a 10-year guarantee, yet they probably last you a lifetime. In the meantime, pay for themselves in energy savings, and there's a five-year easy payment plan. National Aluminium Contact your local National Aluminium office and find out why we're Ireland's number one. Time now for an RTE news report from 1973, featuring a group calling themselves Friends of the Earth, looking for glass bottles to be brought back. It's funny that 40 years later, Ireland's deposit return scheme is being brought in to tackle the 1 million bottles and the 1.6 million aluminium cans that currently end up in landfills or as litter. Meanwhile, across the city at Cornell's Court, a group calling themselves the Friends of the Earth were campaigning for the withdrawal from use of the plastic milk bottle and by means of leaflets and posters were pointing out the advantages of glass. I asked one of their members, Mr Patrick Dunn, what are their main objections to the plastic milk bottle? Uh, These bottles are made from oil, which is a precious non-renewable resource and which is swiftly running out. Um, At least 30 of these are used as a substitute for each glass bottle, so this will naturally increase the problems of waste disposal. At this time of year, uh, broken glass on our beaches is a problem. Is this not a factor in deciding which form of container should be used? I think this is a different problem. The public should be educated to return 
return their battles. We're against all non-returnable battles, and we don't think any battles should end up on the beach. Uh, this is quite wrong in itself, but a different problem. This is not just generally an anti-plastic and pro-glass campaign on your part. No, it is an anti-non-returnable campaign. Let's get the reaction now of the Sure It Was Better panel of Pauline, Jules and Emer. I mean, 1973, I suppose they were a little bit before their time. I remember in the 80s was when, you know, the environment as something that could be really damaged and destroyed, you know, came into, mm. I feel, real public consciousness with the ozone layer and yeah. CFCs and you can't use aerosols sure, yeah. anymore. I mean, again, we could be listening to this today, like get rid of plastic bring in reusable glass bottles. Yeah, even though it's 50 years ago and how prophetic it was. Um, Extraordinary. Fair play to Friends of the Earth. Um, They're still obviously, you know, still going, still trying to bang home the messages and and save the world. But um, we're way behind, aren't we? Drowning in plastic. 50 years ago, they were were flagging it up. And uh, yeah, that's depressing. Very depressing. The RT Archives is currently digitising its audio archive, meaning thousands of new programmes are becoming digitally available. This valuable RTE material is being safeguarded and made accessible for future use. Some of this content has not been heard since its original broadcast or indeed may never have been heard in public at all. So how about this gem, an up-and-coming chap back in 1958 called Gay Byrne, interviewing a Dublin vocal group, the Rialto Quartet. Tonight's story of young ambition in the city features a team of four. During the week, I called into a house in Dolphins Bar in Dublin where four young men were rehearsing a song. They are four local lads who have been singing together as a close harmony quartet for over a year now. I spoke with the leader of the group, 24-year-old Paddy MacDonald. Hello, Paddy, and what about letting us in on the secret of all this very special rehearsal? Well, Gay, every rehearsal is a special one for us because we're not such a great fun out of it. But this one is particularly so because we're working on two songs that we are going to put on a record. I see. And what have you got in mind, Paddy? Well, we've been singing together now for over a year. We've done quite a bit of shows, so we decided we'd like to try our hand on records. And at your own expense? Well, yes. No one seems to want to spend any money on us, so we decided we'd go out and spend make this record at our own expense and try and get some outside party interested in it. Oh, I see. Uh, you're not professionals now, are you? Oh, no, we have our day jobs to attend to. We only do this as a sideline. I see, and the other lads are? We have Joseph Merrigan. Hello, Joe. Sean McGrath, guitarist. Oh, I see. And Charles Bloom. I see. Um, how are you, boys? Well, now, suppose no one is interested in this disc, Paddy. What then? Well, then, Gay, there's no harm done. We've knocked good fun out of it. And uh, you just hope for the best anyway that something good will come out of it. I see. Well, no one is going to come along knocking at the door for you, I suppose, so you decided that rather than wait to it yourself. Exactly. Well, you're quite right, I think, and I wish you the very best of luck. But before you go, would you like to give us a few a few bears of what you have in mind? Now it seems like only yesterday I sailed from out of Cork a wanderer from Erin's Isle, I landed in New York. Now there wasn't a soul to greet me there, a stranger on the shore. But your Irish luck was with me here, and riches came galore. And now I'm going back again. To dear old Aaron's Isle My friends will meet me on the pier And greet me with a smile 
to their spaces there I've almost forgot I've been so long away But my mother will introduce them all And this to me will say Shake hands your Uncle Mike, me boy And here's your sister Kate And here's the girl who used to swing down by the garden gate Shake hands with all the neighbours And kiss the callings off You're as welcome as the flowers And made your dear old daddy gone I wonder what happened to the Rialto Quartet And Gay Byrne for that matter Hello. In this final programme in the series, our subject is The Woman Alone. Early 70s again now, and another RT documentary series. The topic here is what it was like to be a single woman back then, and more specifically, the life of a widowed woman. Let's take a listen. The married woman in our society enjoys a certain status, but the extent of this depends practically completely on the status of our husband. But if we take a look at the position of the woman who hasn't got a husband, we find some disturbing attitudes. Kathleen Hanrahan had a very happy marriage and lived in a country town until the death of her husband ten years ago. Of course it meant a complete change in my life, but that I had to, first of all, cope with the dreadful thing that had happened to me and the extreme loneliness and vulnerability of my situation, you know. And two, I had to think about going back to work. And I had to change from the provincial town to Dublin and um, get myself organised. And it was a great job, on top of which I was um, overcome with loneliness for myself, but perhaps even more for my children, I think. Uh, The deprivation they had suffered, you know, because they had lost their daddy whom they loved. And not alone that, they had also lost me in a way, really, because I had to go to work now. And my work was nursing and therefore when I went back to nursing I went back full time and I had to assume the responsibilities of this job which meant indeed that I had to go on on Christmas Day sometimes. It's often said I think in Ireland that um, the position of the woman alone is quite difficult. It's quite difficult. Yes, indeed it's quite difficult. Perhaps because of uh, our own attitude Certainly I know in my case it was because of my own attitude because I felt once my husband was gone that I was going to become the ploy of every tradesman. So therefore I had to develop this kind of, which I didn't want to do, and which I found it quite difficult to do. But I accused every man, I think, who came to do plumbing or electricity. I almost said to him at the door, well now I know that you know that I'm a widow and you are going to do me down. I had this feeling about cars, about electricity, about everything. I don't think it was true, but I think it was my attitude. We asked Mrs Hanrahan how she got on socially after the death of her husband. You see, I was a difficult person, I suppose, when it happened to me. When people invited me out, I thought, well, it's not for me. They're making a superhuman effort. And if I go, I'm upsetting everything on them because I'm the widow and I'm the odd woman out. And what on earth are they going to do with me? And this, I find added to my sense of isolation you know and and again this was me I suppose this was me but I do feel that people do feel that you're a bit of a, an embarrassment I think if you go out 
they perhaps think you're looking for another man. And if you stay in, they think you're depressed and they might like to look about you or feel that you should have treatment or something. It's difficult because you're so upset and you're so lonely that I suppose you are very difficult to deal with, you know. But it was all the vulnerabilities that I suddenly felt, you know, things that I never had to think about. Rates and moieties and keeping the house repaired and all the thousand and one things, getting the house insured, doing all these sort of things. Let's hear from Pauline Jules and Emer now about this documentary from 40 years ago. That is... My heart really goes out to that it's woman. one of the saddest things yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah. I really feel like she's... That's a... exactly what I was going to say, yeah. the saddest thing. Wow, so sad. I feel like she's a victim of a society that kind of expected women to be in a, in, you know, a marriage with the husband and yeah. be looked after by him, but then kind of dropped her once the husband was dead and she felt like she had to do everything herself. And how vulnerable she felt by being a a single woman again. That everybody was out to get her. Like as in they got a call to the door and they were going to do a bit of plumbing or whatever. Oh, here we go now. They're going to take advantage of me. Yeah, there's no man to mind me. To defend me. Wow. But at the same time, she kind of, I got a strength from her as well because, you know, she obviously got through it and she Mm -hmm. said she had to go nursing and sometimes leave her children on Christmas Day. But what a sad position to be in. But I mean, even though I, I think attitudes are a little bit different now, I still think a lot of the same probably feelings might be had by a woman in a similar position today. Yeah. That's one of the saddest clips we've ever listened to. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't it? This next clip from the early 1980s featuring mainly the late Limerick Socialist TD Jim Kemi about what it was like to espouse women's issues in the doll back then. We also hear briefly from our current president, Michael D. Higgins. Can I get back to Jim Kemi and Limerick? Jim, do you feel that, that you should have, uh, if you like, having identified yourself with feminist issues, have a kind of a responsibility, in, in, in a sense, to sort of take on the mantle of the representative of, of women in the Dáil? I do, and I'm very proud of that mantle as well, because there was a slogan some years ago that women candidates put forward here in Limerick, why not a woman? And I saw many women in the Dáil myself, and while this may sound patronising of me, and I wouldn't want to be patronising about anybody, I understood about products of Irish society, like a lot of the men who are members of the Dáil, and really they were never involved in these issues at all. Whereas for long number of years, since I founded the Family Planning Clinic in Limerick about nine years ago, uh, I, I've been involved in these issues. So therefore, to me, it's very much part and parcel of my socialist politics. But you need to develop consciousness as well amongst all deputies and in all parties, yes. because the only way forward we can uh, uh, move is by pushing these issues and all opportunities. Right. Not, not two small ones, perhaps, could mention. Family planning bill, uh, the present one, is very unsatisfactory. So that should be reviewed and reformed. And perhaps uh, an all-party committee on marriage, including the examination of divorce, that was something that we tried to push in the last hour, but was frustrated by Charlie Hawes and Fianna Fáil's refusal to participate in the committee. Well, indeed, and I think uh, the Fianna Fáil line still is that they wouldn't participate right. in the party committee. But w- one last thing to you, Jim. What about the attitude of male TDs in the Doyle when you raise uh, women's issues, or if Michael D is to bring up this idea of having this overall legislation? Well, so, some of them sometimes look at you with a certain amount of pity, and they make out <laughs> you're some sort of a sissy or so, something to be involved in yourself in these issues. And it's a reflection of their own ignorance as well. Mm-hmm. And I myself have de- developed a good deal from women, uh, my dealings with women, to have civilised me as well. 
Well, it made me more progressive than I have ever been before. Right. So I've enjoyed my involvement with women over the years. <laughs> Michael T., yes. uh, how about yeah. you? Well, I, I think that it's very important to take up Jimmy's point there. And that We've only got about 45 seconds 40, left. Yes, and that is sexist society, society. That is society that discriminates against women on the basis of sex. Really not only damages women, but irreparably damages many men's personalities too. And this is reflected very often in the rather ignorant attitudes through no fault of their own and, and the, repress, the repression that they bring to bear on these issues. And you, th- th- you think that's common amongst male I'm sorry I used the word irreparable because I think that people can come in fact to re-socialise themselves into a consciousness of this and this is something we have to work at. And we'll you think you But I do think that it isn't, it's very, very important, the point at which we began, is that you do not have to choose between these issues or the economy. These issues are within the economy and economic discrimination in fact feeds into more discrimination against uh, women as well. Right. Michael D. Higgins, Jim Kemi and Trina Dooney, thank you all very much for coming into the studio. That's it from Women Today for Today back again tomorrow at two o'clock so goodbye till then Pauline Jules Emer. Oh, I love Michael D. Yeah, it's it's nice. Yeah, well, those are two of my favorite, uh, the my political heroes, um, Jim Kemmy and Michael D. Oh, that was just wonderful. Um, yeah, really, oh. really quite refreshing to hear. I mean, obviously, Michael D. is still very much in our in our consciousness and and as verbose mm-hmm. as as ever. Jim Kemmy is a name that um, you know this was the early eighties, so you know I was quite young. But Jim Kemmy is a name that is stuck in my head, so I know that it is a name that was being talked about a lot, maybe at home and just in, in general he's he really sounds like a stand-up guy I liked when he said it was he needed yes. to develop consciousness among all deputies an intriguing program now from the early 1970s about what new fathers thought about fatherhood we asked the father of a five-month-old baby what he felt I, I certainly didn't feel uh, I didn't really expect to feel any great outflow of emotion or affection or responsibility uh, that comes later uh, it grows on uh, you you've got think? to know the, the individual, the person, before you can feel any affection. Mm. Except in a very sort of general way, a vague feeling of uh, responsibility for mm. this. So you think there is a difference between the way the mother feels and the way the father feels? Um, yes, in that sense. I think that the... the uh, I think that the father's feeling of affection is a sort of sense of duty, a sense of responsibility. Uh, and extending from that, uh, the desire to protect. But in a way, I suppose, it's more a desire to protect the child as an adjunct of the mother, not as a person in its own right. Uh, certainly initially, you know, you, you can't separate, certainly at the beginning, the mother from the child. As time goes on, you can, and the person, the, the child develops a personality and so on. And, and this needn't take very long, it need only be a matter of weeks. But certainly at the beginning, mm. there are, you know, uh, interrelated and inseparable. I suppose we can all remember from our own experience certain tensions in the family. Love and affection on the one hand, and on the other, feelings like jealousy, resentment, and a feeling that you, you, the individual, are being swallowed up. We talked about this to Maureen Gaffney. People should have a right to live their own lives. If your children want to live a life different than yours, that is their right. They are individuals in their own right. And you have absolutely no rights over them like that. Well, do you think that parents have a right to live a life apart from their children when they've when they've got them to a certain stage? I think this is the whole crucial point, you say, that if people, um, sort of, as I was saying earlier, if they gave themselves freely to each other, if they put their own marriage first, their marriage comes first, their children only come second. 
and this is my opinion about things, that if, 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 a, if a husband and wife really love each other, then what they will give to their children will be far and away superior to all the expensive toys and all the waiting up all night and staying in every day and they couldn't go away because the kids will get deprived. This is, this is not true, you know. If, you, if children can see a loving couple that they can identify with, then you are giving them the most second most precious thing you can give them, somebody that they can see who love. They know how to love, you know, and when people know how to love, they very rarely go wrong. I'm just thinking about modern fatherhood and when a baby is born these mm-hmm. days in the hospital, the father present, involved, skin to skin contact and how yeah. it used to be, you know, the receiving of the news and then straight to the pub. Straight to the pub and yeah, a f- <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a feeling of, of duty. It's fascinating. Protect. Yeah, fascinating to hear the father in particular um, uh, talking about yeah, what he felt his duty was. Uh, really fascinating. I think things have changed an awful lot now, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And and listening to Maureen Gaffney then talking about parenting. And I mean, in a sense, I felt she was very right in that, you know, a, a stable and loving environment will produce hopefully a stable and loving child. Um, maybe not necessarily with a married couple. It doesn't always have to be that way. But yeah, in some interesting attitudes towards parenting there. Yeah. Come, little son and I will tell you why. I think it's time to unleash the Frankie. As regular listeners are no doubt aware, the Dear Frankie programme was hosted by agony aunt Frankie Byrne, who had a weekly radio programme for 22 years on RTE Radio. It attracted up to 100 letters a week at its peak. Let's hear who Frankie is advising tonight. Dear Frankie, I'm desperately in need of some advice and you're the only one I can turn to with my problem. I'm one of a family of six. Four girls and two boys. And my problem is, Frankie, that whenever I bring a boy home, one of my sisters is sure to flirt with him and take him away from me. Now, I know my sisters are better looking than I am. Frankie, I'm thinking of running away from home. Only I wouldn't know where to go. Could you give me some names and addresses of places where I could go to stay in Dublin? 
I just can't bear to stay at home any longer. Please don't mention my name on your program. Yours sincerely. Now, the answer to both your requests is no. No, I will not mention your name. And no, I will not give you any addresses in Dublin to run away to. Running away is not the answer to your problem. It's a pity you didn't tell me your age, but I would guess that it must be somewhere around 15 or 16. And you're probably the youngest of the six of you. Now, the clue is your remark about being led to believe that you are not the best looking of the girls. Somebody older, with superior defence mechanisms, would have said that the others were said to be prettier. Only the very young or the very old will admit to being ugly. In case you think I'm making fun, believe me, I'm not. I'm trying to get you to see that to an outsider, your situation is not as desperate as you think. It's certainly infuriating, I can see that. But not desperate, far from it. In a family with four girls, some are bound to be better looking than another, and some will be more assured than the others. Therefore, one of these girls who is not the prettiest yet and lacks the experience is bound to feel badly done by, especially if she is the youngest. But time will take care of that, believe me. Those other girls will probably marry. They will certainly grow older, older than you, and soon you will be much prettier than you think you are now and more self-confident. You may even start taking some of your sister's boyfriends away from them, if that sort of thing appeals to you. But I think that having suffered from that sort of situation yourself, the things you will come to value are constancy, understanding, honesty, loyalty, and someone whose head can't be turned. I really don't think you'll have to run away to Dublin to find the right man. If only you can develop patience. There are great things ahead for you. I'm sure of that. Ah, oh, Frankie, always sensible. Yes, that was vintage. I, I just feel she was at the height of her superpowers there. Brilliant situation and um, and wonderful advice to fix things. Yeah. Um, oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> I love her stern tone in the delivery of her advice. She's amazing. She really is. It reminds me of me like packing a Quinsworth bag when I was about nine going, I'm running away, I'm climbing a tree. And my mother being like, OK, see you later. <laughs> Thanks for the advice, Frankie. You have to admit it, it was more helpful than the fashion advice from the man who hated trousers on women back in 1984. Crime is a constant anxiety down through the decades. Are rates going up or are they going down? Do we need more investment in policing? Back in 1982, a criminologist was brought in by RT Radio 1 to analyse the figures and to answer the question, was there a crime wave in Ireland in the early 1980s? If you look at the statistics between 1950 and 1975, that is for a full quarter century, you will find that the indictable crimes, as the more serious crimes, have increased by about 36,000 offences. But if you look at the last five years of reported crime, that is between 1976 and 1981, you will find an equal increase, that is of over 35,000 indictable offences. So the rate of increase is quite colossal. In other words, the last five years of reported crime accounts for the same quantity, same magnitude of increase as the quarter century did before 1976. But don't you think this increase then is a definite cause for alarm? Well, you must remember that all the time we're talking about offences, we're not talking about people. In other words, the 90,000 indictable offences committed in 1981 
as reported to police, do not necessarily equate with 90,000 persons committing indictable offences. In other words, some people may commit a lot of crime and others uh, commit nil. You might have one person who commits four, 40, 400 uh, crimes. So given that limitation that we do not know how socially distributed uh, the crimes that are reported are, um, we cannot uh, quite definitely say how alarming it is. But I think in answer to your question that the strong inference must be that yes, it is a source of alarm, the, the increase in crime. I promised you earlier some more vintage archive from 1940 when we were coming up with ever more inventive forms of food production to cope with shortages during World War II. I didn't think it involved people with spears in Wexford hunting eels, honestly. I noticed too by this morning's paper that after a lapse of nearly 15 years, owing to the lack of demands, the eel spearing industry has been revived in South County Wexford. These eels, which are to be found in the mud flats near Ross Lair, are killed by fishermen who wade out after them in the shallows with long arrow-pointed weapons like harpoons. Eels, it's good to hear, are again in brisk demand and fishermen are getting worthwhile prices for them. Okay, Pauline, Jules and Emer, we've covered a multitude on tonight's programme, from spearfishing eels, mean sisters stealing boyfriends, to the dangers of crumbling pineapple-themed masonry. The big question is, was it better or was it worse back in the day? What do you think? Do you know what? I felt like a lot of this episode, some of the, the, the issues and the problems were kind of similar to ones we'd have today. I mean, we were talking about eyesores on College Green, a lot of that going on still today. Mm. Um, concerns about rubbish, plastic, getting rid, rid of rubbish, you know, having positive role models in the doll. I mean, all, all things that we're still talking about. 50 years yeah. on, still talking about them. And yet what it's like to be a single woman and the attitudes. And I suppose the only big improvement is fatherhood. Mm -hmm. These days, men being much more involved with their children, actually changing the nappies Mm -hmm. and um, being present at the birth. Mm -hmm. And environmentally, at least we've come on from what the the sanitary department um, uh, um, was doing. So I actually, I'm thinking things are better now, even if we have some of the same issues uh, going on. But I think, yeah, better now. A little bit better now, I agree. But no doubt there are still plenty of teenagers who want to run away from home. Oh, there always will be. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next Tuesday night at 10pm for episode 3 in the current series when we hear that visitors to Dublin back in the 1950s also had mixed feelings about the place. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, now, now. Come, come. We're not as bad as all that. This is the voice of one of the zoo's latest arrivals. Three giant grey Australian kangaroos. They look like enormous four feet tall mice. See you next week.